if you do your job well, you flip a significant piece of the puzzle blue. And if you can flip that one piece, everyone can flip their piece too. And you might flip enough to where you flip the entire state blue. We all grow up hoping to positively influence our communities, but in a nation so polarized and gridlocked, making real impact can be difficult. Hey there and welcome, I'm Kate Chen and you're listening to Roads Less Taken, an initiative to explore the paths and careers many students, myself included, dream about doing but never actually pursue. This week, I'm talking to Alexis Salcedo, a regional organizing director for the Arizona Democratic Party. After graduating in 2019 with a major in public policy from Duke, Alexis traveled cross-country, first supporting Warren for president in the Iowa caucuses before hitting the ground in Phoenix with Mark Kelly for senator. In this episode, we'll be uncovering how she found a path in politics and what making political progress means to her. Thank you so much, Alexis, for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so curious about your path because I know after you graduated from Duke, you actually worked at a public relations agency in D.C. Um, and then one day you just decided to leave and go support Warren in the Iowa caucuses. So when did you really start thinking about getting involved in political campaigning? I think a lot of people assume that people want to go into campaigns and know exactly that that's what they wanna do from the very beginning. There's this notion that you have to know everything about politics, you have to be a political science major, you have to you know, have volunteered before, and that is completely incorrect. I have done none of that. I started off in communications, and when I graduated, I had kind of had all of these experiences that built up to me being like, I'm graduating in May of 2019, which is kind of the onslaught of one of the biggest presidential campaigns of our lifetimes, most important, most significant. And obviously now we know that it's the most expensive too. So there were a lot of things like pushing me towards the presidential campaigns and and campaign world in general. Um, But mainly it was the experiences I had in college. For me, I loved school. I loved learning. I loved studying, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So when I got to Duke, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do things I had never done before. And I eventually made my way towards public policy. I was in school, Trump got elected. All of a sudden our rights as women were being questioned in a lot of different states. Um, North Carolina was passing the bathroom bill where they were outwardly discriminating against transgender people. All of these different things that I cared about were kind of either burning down or in the spotlight or something was happening. And so I decided that I wanted to go and do something in that. I wanted to do public policy. I wanted to learn about how we even get an idea or public opinion into the hands of people who make laws. And then I got a job in communications in a senator's office in the Senate. And when that happened, my eyes opened to what it meant to be in politics. Um, I had not been exposed to before. Both my parents are doctors. And I kind of was like, wow, that's exactly what I want to do. So then I worked on an on-campus campaign for young trustee at Duke. And I was like, I love the fast-paced environment. I love this. Even though it's not exactly what campaigns are like, it introduced me to it. And I was like, I just need the excitement. I need the fast movement of campaigns. But my family's half Paraguayan, half Southern, Trump supporters on one side, Latinos on the other. 
So it was just this, you know, mod podge of different things, either about my identity or decisions that I make that kind of brought me there. I love that you mention all these specific events happening in our government and our community that really impacted you personally and, and that being a motivator for you wanting to pursue political activism and campaigning. I'm curious, I know a lot of public policy majors from Duke go into consulting or something that's less on the ground. And I'm wondering what kind of support and resources did you find on campus to really pursue campaigning or activism? What I will say is that Duke does have a very formalized recruitment process for investment banking and management consulting. So a lot of my friends were going into it. So there was a period in which I felt like that was the only option where I was kind of getting sucked into that. And I did study for those interviews and I was doing that in London in my room in London while I was abroad. And I was like, I don't like this enough to do it. So that's the only, like, that was one of the only reasons why I didn't continue in that process. That might've been the most impactful decision I made, but I don't think Duke necessarily knows how to have a process for people to get into political activism just because it is a really insular field. You know, it's all about who you know, how, like who you talk to. No one knows what a field organizer is or does. If I, if you'd asked me that when I was in college and been like, what is a field organizer? I would have been like, honestly, I have no idea. And so I think it's more of, we have to kind of build up these organizations like Organizing Core. I don't know if you've heard of that or Organizing Together that offer information on what organizing and political activism is in the first place. And mentioning that, like what what is field organizing? And I know now you're a regional organizing director. What is the difference between the two roles and how did you move from one to the other? Yeah, so a field organizer, I would say is like the entry level field position. As a field organizer, you join a team and you join what's called a region. So for example, Arizona had 16 by the end of it, 16 regions. And in each region, there was a certain number of legislative districts or a certain number of precincts that that region was in um, charge of. And so as a field organizer, you are assigned to a team that is one region and you are assigned a certain number of precincts or a certain area or a certain county or a certain legislative district. And you're in charge of turning out the vote there. So you're given day-to-day, week-to-week metrics you have to hit. That's all part of a bigger plan. Typically your metrics look like active volunteers. So volunteers that are doing a certain number of events consecutively in a specific threshold. So usually it's two events in four weeks, right? They're doing a phone bank and they're coming to a house party within four weeks consistently. The second one is, you know, it's a metric of calls made or doors knocked if you're an in-person campaign. So obviously if you wanted to, you could knock 400 doors in a week. You could, but is that a good efficient use of your time? No. So you get volunteers to help you hit that goal. In Arizona, we had Pebble commits. So people who committed to signing up for the permanent early voter list. And so, you know, all the metrics kind of work together in this way of like, you can make a phone call that comes for your call goal that will get you a Pebble commit. Someone on the phone says, hey, I'll sign up for the permanent early voter list. Oh, and I'll help you make phone calls. So you have a new volunteer Pebble commit and you made a phone call. So all these metrics kind of work together to help you hit your goal all across the board and what we call our progress to goal spreadsheet. And so that's like a really tangible way to track your success as an organizer. And so when you think about, you know, your time as a field organizer, a combination of it is one-on-one meetings with volunteers, calls, just making calls to people who you're trying to recruit volunteers for or talk to people, get them interested in your candidate or the campaign, hosting 
phone banks, hosting house parties, getting new people in the door. So, you know, obviously that looks different in a virtual world, but that's the gist of it is just talking to people. As a regional organizing director, you own that entire region. So in Arizona, I had nine field organizers underneath me. My region was two legislative districts in the suburbs of Phoenix, and it was cut into nine different turfs for each organizer to own. And so I was in charge of hitting our region-wide top lines and helping my field organizers hit their weekly goals. So scheming with them, um, we say scheming, not in a bad way, more of like, what can we do creatively and differently to get more people in the door? Um, I would have one-on-one meetings with them every week, sometimes multiple times a week if it's a hard week, where we would talk about who are our leads, who can we ask more from, who can we make a super volunteer to help bring in their friends. And so my goal was to teach brand new field organizers how to organize to the point where they themselves can organize and manage their own volunteer teams and also manage a political relationship with a lot of local leadership in those legislative districts because there is definitely a balancing act of we want to make sure that we are leaving the region better than we found it. We want to make sure that they can stay in their communities and help build up their local infrastructure even after the cycle is over. So the political element is really important as a regional organizing director. So how do people typically get started in campaigning, whether it's as a field organizer or something else? And where did you start? So I started as a field organizer, brand new, very green field organizer, no idea what it was. A lot of people start by volunteering, whether it's on, you know, Duke's campus had a lot of uh, opportunities for volunteering there. Um, it's really, that's a good way to get started in your neighborhood with your local officials. Oftentimes they partner with campaigns to work for them too um, and have volunteer events. That's a really common path as a start as a volunteer, then maybe become a paid intern or a paid fellow. Uh, and then, you know, once you're there, you prove yourself and you graduate or you have the time, you take off school, then you become like a full-time uh, paid employee. I skipped that first step because I told him, I was like, I'll go anywhere you need me to go. I'll learn whatever you need me to do. I'll be, I can be in the car right now if you tell me to. And I think that was what got me the position was I was willing to do what I needed to do. And earlier we kind of talked about it's, you know, it's about who you know, it's about who you talk to. So how did you even get your resume in the pool? Is that something you just applied to and, and then they reached out or did you talk to a lot of people as well? So essentially what happens is you drop your email in a general resume bank. Oftentimes your resume gets sent there and it just gets put in a stack and never seen again. So I knew that if I just applied with my resume and cover letter that it probably wouldn't get seen. In some cases it does. My boss to this day tells me that she just saw my resume in the resume bank and interviewed me that way. I'm a little bit pessimistic. I always think that, you know, politics is networking. You have to know someone to flag your resume. So I knew that it, that the first step was applying and the second step was talking to anyone that would talk to me. So I talked to like a digital director on, I think Biden's campaign who knew someone on Warren's campaign. And, you know, I talked to a former campaign staffer who like might've known someone on the Elizabeth Warren campaign. Oh, my former boss from Senator Menendez's office when I was interning there knew a field organizer on Elizabeth Warren's campaign. So I just, you know, you just have to, talk. And I think the biggest thing is I would, every time I would talk to someone, if it wasn't a direct contact, I would ask them who else they knew who could get me in contact with them. 
So whether that was how they saw my resume or it was just luck of the draw in the resume bank, I ended up getting a interview and they asked me a lot of different questions about creative problem solving and then I got hired. That's awesome. And I feel like a huge obstacle to anyone who's trying to pursue a less established path is just not even knowing how to get started. And so especially for campaigning, it really does make sense is just talk to a lot of people, reach out to anyone who might be doing anything remotely related to what you want to do. And that's the best way to get to know the job and also get closer to the job. So you were interning in DC and then one day you literally just like got in your car and drove to Iowa. So what really inspired you to join the Warren campaign? Obviously, we had 20 plus candidates running for president at that point. And for me, I knew the work was going to be hard. I knew I was going to have long days. I would have to move to a state that was completely foreign to me. And I think the biggest thing I was looking for was someone that I could believe in 100% someone who I knew wasn't doing this for any other reason other than they wanted to make a difference and they really wanted to fight for the people that were voting for them. And for me, Elizabeth Warren understood what it meant to have a population like we do in the United States where economic policy is going to impact me differently than it's going to impact my brother, differently than it's going to impact someone who lives in a completely different state at a different um, socioeconomic status than me with a different lived experience than me. And so she took policy and was able to be like, hey, we can't do cookie cutter policy anymore. We have to actually write it and apply it so that it impacts everyone in a positive way. And that went along with my thesis. It went along with everything I learned in my background. And, you know, she was someone who was shaking hands with every single person and giving them a hug and a selfie after every single event and wasn't taking any sort of closed door fundraising. And for me, she was just someone that you could really believe in. And on top of that, they had a fantastic team. Their team was so scrappy and creative and volunteer focused and like making it a good experience for volunteers. And I think for me, that just showed that they had the respect and the kindness, but also the drive to do the hard work because she wasn't the pick, right? She was, it wasn't going to be easy. We were running a candidate who was, first of all, a woman. And not just that, but she was very progressive. And so we knew that in Iowa, that would be tough. They never took it as something to, you know, dampen her passion for the policy that she had. They accentuated it and they were like, this is what we need. So you were with Warren through the Iowa caucuses and ultimately um, Warren ended up dropping out of the presidential race and you eventually moved on to help Mark Kelly flip Arizona. So what was that transition like between the two campaigns and why did you choose Arizona as your next step? For me, it was a lot of soul searching because you put your heart and soul into a candidate that you are absolutely in love with. And for Elizabeth Warren, That's how we all felt. And they created a team culture around that that was so uplifting and supportive. So I left the caucuses, which were crazy. If you've never heard a caucus before, I would definitely recommend Pod Save America's series on the caucus. So after that, I think I was already a little bit burnt out then, but they do what's called, they resituate us to a different state that needs help in in field and organizing. So me and my coworker, who was also one of my really good friends, got sent to Seattle, Washington, because they do completely 100% absentee voting, like mail-in ballot primary. We got there, you know, early February, right after the caucus on February 3rd. And we were there till Super Tuesday on March 3rd, and a couple days after. And we were working there 
every single day. It was like one month of a sprint felt like after that I was tired. It took everything out of me to do that emotionally. I mean, I have not cried so much in my entire life, probably, you know, you build these relationships with volunteers that are like family, like grandmothers, grandfathers, um, who are also super upset and invested in this candidate. So when they drop out, it's heartbreaking. And so I, I knew that whatever I did next, I would have to be that passionate about it, if not more passionate about it. So it took me about a month and a half. Um, I went home, I recuperated, I slept and I wrote down all of the things that I wanted in my next experience. I knew I wanted to, I had a fantastic boss in Iowa and in Seattle, and I knew I wanted to be someone's fantastic boss and take what I've learned. So I knew I wanted to be a regional organizing director. I think the second biggest thing was I knew I wanted to be in a state where I could have an impact. Um, And Arizona was one of those up and coming, just turned purple state. Like it was red until it just slightly tinged purple, maroon even maybe. I was like, I wanna challenge. I wanna do it because I wanna flip a state. I was nervous to love a candidate again because I was nervous about getting heartbroken again, which is crazy that you can fall in love with that experience so much, but you do. And it's scary to try and do it all over again. So I went into it being like, I'm Latina. I want to go to a state where the Latinx vote is going to make or break a state. Um, I want to be a part of that experience, growing an organization that values uplifting voices that are typically not given the opportunity to have a say. A lot of the times people just assume, hey, we're going to get the centrist vote out. That's We're going to focus on the central part of the spectrum, you know, the white suburbs. Arizona, we had the opportunity to focus on the Latinx community and really have an awesome Spanish program and, you know, turn out voters that don't typically turn out to vote. So that was a big appeal for me. You know, Arizona was an uphill battle. One that no one ever thought we could win. And I did end up loving the candidate. I love, ended up loving all the candidates up and down the ballot because that's something we really focused on was like local elections too, because those are super, super important, especially in a general. And, you know, being able to be a part of a team that built the best Spanish language program in the entire country was something that um, I'm so lucky to have been a part of. You mentioned that no one ever thought you could have flipped Arizona. And I mean, I was surprised. I'm The whole nation was probably surprised when Arizona went blue. So I'm curious, what kind of communities did you really reach out to? How did you resonate with swing voters and really get them to both turn out and turn out to vote blue? One thing to note about campaigns in general is the way that we do field and we reach out to people is different in a primary than it is in a general So in a packed primary like we've had, we are talking to anyone that will listen. An undecided Democratic voter, those Obama-Trump voters, people who've never voted before, people who just turned 18, we're registering people to vote. You know, we're doing it all in the primary because you, it's the margins in order to be on the Democratic ticket. And when you're in a general, it's all about turnout. We're really just trying to turn out the people who we know we can get, but also turn out the people who we know care about the issues who maybe have never voted before or maybe who don't know anything about it or don't even know that they can vote. And so you'd think that we're doing a lot of persuasion in terms of getting people to go from Trump to Biden. But surprisingly, actually, there's a lot of people who were like, I'm disenfranchised with Trump, but I don't really want to vote for Biden. And so we had to convince those people just to vote, right? We knew they weren't going to vote for Trump 
but we wanted to convince them to show up to vote. And a lot of the times that meant talking to the swing voters and being like, hey, we need to show up for your local candidates, the people that are going to make the decisions about your kid's school, that make decisions about your community, your local neighborhoods. And by turning them out and connecting the dots between your local leadership and top of the ticket, we were able to turn out those voters who maybe wouldn't have gone to vote. So there's a lot less persuasion than you would probably think, but it's a lot of, we had a Spanish language program that was turning out Spanish speaking voters who didn't have the resources. We had an API program where we were reaching out to API communities throughout Arizona. I think we have the second or the third highest API community in a swing state in the United States. So we were doing that and reaching out to, you know, multi-generational households to get everyone to vote. And obviously we have uh, Arizona had some of the largest universities in the, in the country. So we were really focusing on the youth vote too. So it's a turnout game. So on top of all those amazing programs and efforts that you guys had, was there anything unique about this election that you think really helped to unprecedentedly flip Arizona in such a tight race? We try a lot of things. At the core level, we know voter contact works. We know knocking doors works. We know making phone calls works. Even if you make 100 calls and only five people pick up, like we know that those five people are going to have a statistically much higher percentage of going out and voting than if we hadn't called them. In this case, in a general, we knew turnout and getting people registered works and we did it. We know that we can no longer ignore communities anymore. We have to have a Spanish language program. We have to reach out to tribal communities. Obviously we were in a world of COVID. And the one thing about Arizona is that it COVID hit Arizona really, really hard. And it's, it's local politicians, especially the governor, Doug Ducey, they really did not do a good job of controlling the spread. Um, and I think if you ask anyone in Arizona, they would probably agree. Um, and so we were able to really focus on COVID as being you know, a reason to show up to vote. And I think that's something that definitely worked in our favor. And second, we made the decision to do everything virtually. So we weren't contradicting ourselves when we were saying, you know, COVID is really a huge issue. Let's go out in person and knock doors. That was a winning decision in terms of we had phone banks that were thousands of volunteers calling throughout Arizona, all on Zoom. So we were able to really penetrate our voting block and call so many people, text so many people, and that it was linked with the idea of we were being safe and we were fighting for a safer world in Arizona. And I think that was something really interesting, but very successful in a different way than maybe an in-person door knocking one was. I think something else our team did really, really well was we had a regional organizing director in Navajo Nation who was working really closely with the local leadership there. It definitely, definitely was not just us. It was a combination of work that was already happening there and the fact that COVID was happening and really hitting those communities really hard and the fact that there was just this mutual hatred for what was happening in our government. And lastly, the the Spanish-speaking program that we had was really able to target a voting bloc that maybe wouldn't have voted otherwise or hasn't voted in previous elections. I think at the end of the day, campaigns can really be saturated with people who have the same lived experience. And in Arizona, our team, at least in a leadership level, like we had a lot of Latinas. My boss is Latina. I was Latina. My, some of my coworkers who were a voice in the making decisions, the decision to spend money on bilingual mailers about how to vote or how to vote absentee. Oh, and that's a, that's a big one too, is 
we spent a lot of time and energy getting people on what's called the permanent early voter list. It's a way for Arizonans to get a mail-in ballot for the rest of their lives so that they could vote whether we had COVID or not. I can only imagine how much effort this really took. For you and the entire team, we kind of talked about earlier, working on a campaign means long hours, putting in a lot of work. And I'm curious, like, what kept you motivated and how did you find the energy to really be doing all of this for months on end? Field organizing is so impactful. Like, it is the best job in the world. And there's a lot of different reasons why you learn so much. You build such close relationships with your teammates and your volunteers. For me, the idea of field organizing really kept me going. I loved it. You build up these relationships with people and they're relying on you just as much as you're relying on them. So, you know, my ladies of legislative district 18, who were these badass women who were running that district and flipping it blue before I even got there, like we were relying on each other to turn on the vote. And so they kept me going. My team kept me going as a field organizer. My volunteers who showed up every week to stuff kept me going you know, Elizabeth Warren candidates who really care about their communities, Mark Kelly. Um, And I think it's really unique as someone coming right out of college where you've never really been responsible for anyone but yourself to all of a sudden have that responsibility. It is both horrifying and also really empowering. And I think that really kept me going. So with campaign work being largely time boxed around basically the timelines of elections, what do people typically do during these like off-season periods? And what are you going to be doing next? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think it depends, you know, what off-season we're talking about. I think, you know, when Elizabeth Warren dropped out, there was a big push to go work for the general, right? And I think we were all so passionate about our candidate that we were like, now we have to be passionate about our party and we have to go and we have to flip every state blue, no matter who the candidate is. And in this case, we had Joe Biden, which was great. Kamala Harris, fantastic. We had a strong ticket. And so it made it really easy to just be like, I'm going to continue doing campaign work. I'm going to go move to a different state, do keep doing field. I think this transition here and this, this end of this cycle is a little bit different because we're in what's called kind of an off cycle. Um, there's a couple of different routes that people typically take. One is you can go work in, you know, those awesome advocacy organizations, Planned Parenthood, um, the Working Families Party. You can go work for some really cool organizations like Chispa, Voto Latino, those places. That's a little bit, I would say, more stable of a job maybe than field organizing where you're working seven days a week and, you know, it's really long hours. You know, another path is a lot of people are going to move to D.C. and want to go work future Senator-elect Mark Kelly's office, or um, they want to go work, you know, there's, you know, mail firms that do all the paid mailers for a lot of campaigns. There's, um, you know, the administration, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are coming in and they have to restaff that entire place. And it's going to be a really great opportunity to learn what it means to be a part of what we call the official side, not the campaign side, but the official side. And then of course there's the, the local races that are going to be super pivotal to setting up either setting up states and our party as a whole to be ready for 2022. I think one thing that a lot of people think is that 2022, oh, we got the president, it's fine. It's definitely not that. We did take a lot of losses in the House. We have to keep the people that we have there and try and win back some of those seats that we lost. There's really pivotal states, Virginia, one of them, there's a governor's race. Um, Jennifer Carol Foy, super cool woman. There's you know a lot of people running there for state legislative offices. 
So people running like on the local level. And so you can go into campaign work there. Um, New York and Boston have huge mayoral races there too. And so that, that's an opportunity to go work there and work for those mayoral campaigns. Uh, for me, I'm going the campaign route. My work isn't done. We saw huge wins um, nationally, but we also saw really big losses on the local level. And I think there's a way to learn from the things we did wrong in 2020 and make sure that we fix it and course correct in 2021 and 2022. And so I'm looking to one, do that, figure out what we did wrong, fix it, build off what we did right. And second of all, I want to learn there's a lot more to campaigns than just field organizing. There's so many different departments and they all work together to make it happen. And I want to learn about that interdepartmental element budget. I've never managed money in my life. I want to learn about how to do that. And so I'm actually the campaign manager for um, Sandy Nurse. She's running in for a city council race in New York City in Brooklyn, District 37, vote Sandy. So I'm going to be managing that city council race. And so it's, you know, very different doing a lot more than just field organizing, but I'm going to learn so much and she's an awesome candidate. So I couldn't be more happy. Congratulations on the new job. That is amazing that you went from field organizer to regional organizing director to now managing an entire campaign. And I think it kind of speaks to the inherent nature of campaign work in that you're always going to be looking for a new job after a few months to a year. And I think a lot of college students have this notion of, oh, I'm going to find a job that I can do for maybe like three to five years and then move on. So I'm curious, how do you think the notion of stability fits into your career and what you're looking for? I think you have to learn to be uncomfortable. And I think that's something that not a lot of different careers teach you. If you have a stable job, nine to five, and all of a sudden you're out of a job, it's awful. I think with campaigns, that's just part of it is you're going to not, you're going to be unemployed a lot. But I think getting used to being uncomfortable has allowed me to grow so fast, right? You do jobs that I could never imagine being fully responsible and managing a team of nine in such a publicized, important race at the age of 23. The amount of times I've had to rewrite my resume and really take that leap and do something that's foreign to me and just learn how to do it. I've grown so much as as a candidate for future jobs. I've grown so much at knowing what I want and figuring out exactly what makes me happy and excited to get up every morning. And I think if I didn't have that instability and if I didn't have that feeling of not having control, then I wouldn't have been forced to learn that. And that's something that as a young person, I find to be invaluable because I don't want to wake up one day and be like, I wish I had done something else because I know for sure that these last two years, I wouldn't change it for the world. And when else are you going to move to these random states? It's like I got to do a whole taste test of all these cool cities in the United States that I would have never been able to do otherwise. I totally agree with that. I think for young people now is the time to be unstable and to be challenging yourself and to be doing something where you don't really know where it's going to take you. And that's exactly what you did. Just hopping into your car, driving to Iowa, you ended up in Seattle and Phoenix, like who would have known? Um, And so now I have kind of a more fun question, but are there any misconceptions about campaigning or field organizing that you would like to debunk? I think the biggest one is that you have to know everything about policy. There's That is absolutely incorrect. Every single part of what we talk about in politics, whether it's the economy or foreign relations, domestic policy, all has connections to whatever major you're studying, whether it's business, engineering, environmental policy, specific, like that's a huge one, 
that you can find a passion that you're excited about and you want to talk about that will very easily translate into field organizing or campaign work. You have to know and be willing to put in the work. You have to know your why is what we call it. You have to know why you're there. If you know why you're there and you know why your team is there, you will do well. And there's this idea that you have to be an extrovert to be in campaigns and be a field organizer because there's this assumption that you're talking to people every day. I have social anxiety. A lot of my coworkers have social anxiety. Every single person that I know is nervous to make a phone call. No one is not nervous. No one is so extroverted that they can just talk the ear off of everyone, except for maybe my friend, Ben, who I'm pretty sure could talk the ear off of anyone without any nerves whatsoever. But I think the biggest one is that people think every field organizer has to be extroverted and that is simply not the case. And I have many friends, including myself, who uh, are not that. And do you have any advice to anyone who might want to get involved in campaigning or field organizing? You have to be willing to do the work. I think a lot of people want to go into politics and they have this idea of politics from what they read on Twitter. And they're like, you know, nothing's changed. Nothing's go- like happening. And then they never pick up a phone call and then to pick up a volunteer call. And, you know, I am guilty of this myself. I was like, you know, my vote doesn't matter at one point in my life, but your vote matters plus the volunteering that you do matters. And if you want to continue in this work, you have to understand the power of your voice and actually doing something and getting out there and being uncomfortable and putting in the work. Because if you expect legislators to do it, you have to do it too. You know, you have to do it just as much as they are advocating for pieces of legislation you care about. You have to put in the work to make it happen. So I think if you're going to do and continue in this work, that's something you have to know is that it takes a lot of hustle, but you have the ability to do it. Even if you've never studied political science, even if you've never been in politics, you can do it. And actually, so you've been on the other side of interviewing field organizers uh, to join your team. What advice do you have for people on how to stand out? So surprisingly, if you have food service industry work or you worked in retail, you know, you're on your feet all day, you know how to talk to people and interact with people. Like that to me is really appealing because there's a lot of tools and resources that you learn as a waiter or in retail or in a big store that can really translate well into politics. You know, you wouldn't think about it, but that is something that if I see that, it piques my interest. One of my field organizers LinkedIn messaged me, my boss, my coworker, his boss, like everyone until she got an interview. And that's organizing. That's like quintessential organizing. A lot of my field organizers were executive board members of their clubs or groups. And when you have a hundred college kids in a room, whether it's a sorority or a club of some sort, there's a lot of people who want a lot of different things in that room and you have to find common ground with all of them and you still have to be able to run this organization throughout the rest of the year. And that teaches you a lot. That teaches you about organizing. One of the misconceptions that I would like to debunk is that you have to have that experience. And it's like, I can guarantee you, if you had an internship at the Pentagon or, which is awesome, not going to downplay that. That's amazing. You have that practical knowledge of understanding what it is to be a professional, but I can guarantee you the minute you get on the ground anywhere, you are going to have no idea what the hell you're doing. And so you have to have those characteristics that you can't necessarily teach of, you know, being willing to grind and hustle and you have to have that hunger to do well. And, you know, you rely on things that you've learned in other jobs. Like 
how do you get good tips as a waiter? Thank you so much for joining me today, Alexis. I learned so much about field organizing and campaigning, and especially with everything that's going on politically with the election, it's good to know how to at least get started in this field. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Yes, please go volunteer in Georgia. They need all the help they can get. Phone bank, phone call, text, do everything you can. Phone calling is better than texting, but if texting is all you can do, please do it. If you are on Twitter talking about how angry you are, if we don't win the Senate, then you should be spending that time making phone calls. And that is a hill that I will die on, is that if you are a Twitter troll and not making phone calls, then you are a fake Twitter troll. So please, please, please go and talk to people because that's how we're going to win this election. Um, and follow me on Twitter at Alexis Salcedo with two O's. Well, thank you so much, Alexis. Again, everyone, be sure to help with your local elections as much as you can. Help in Georgia. And of course, follow Alexis's journey as the campaign manager for Sandy Nurse's campaign. 